So let's begin our reading in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. We were having a youth retreat when we were down in uh, southern Minnesota. And we had a, a guy that I had never met before come and, and be a, a speaker there. I know him a lot better today because he is my daughter-in-law Liz's father. But he was pastoring a church over not far from Oatana where we lived. And, and Mark had asked him to come and speak at our youth retreat. And he did. And he came and he, and he taught on, uh, spoke on sexual purity. And to open up his first sermon, he told us that he was at a conference, I think another youth conference, and he was speaking there on the same subject. He was like the last one to speak. And every other person that got up to speak on the issue talked all around the issue and never once said the word. He says, so when I got up there, he says, I used it over and over and over. (laughs) Because I just wanted to be clear about what we were talking about. The reason I bring it up this morning is because that's kind of how John is. If you look at the other Gospels, Matthew starts off with a genealogy. And he's going to go through a lot of Old Testament prophecies to show how Christ is the answer to Old Testament prophecies. They're all fulfilled in Him. And then he has the right genealogy. He's connected to Abraham. Because remember, the Messiah had to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham. He had to be connected to Abraham and then to David because God promised David that it would be his descendant that sits on the throne. And So it gives us genealogy. Luke gives a lot of details. Luke was a physician. And a lot of personal kind of stuff, right? It's within Luke that you find like the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the prodigal son, the stories of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And, and so you find a lot more personal type stories. Luke begins with uh, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, which flows into the miraculous birth of Christ and then on to the story of Christ's life. Mark's a little bit right to the action. He's the shortest of the Gospels. He jumps right to the ministry. It starts off with John the Baptist the baptism of Christ and the temptation then right into His ministry and choosing disciples. And a lot of the Gospel Mark focuses on the, the latter part of Christ's ministry. You know, John is the only Gospel that starts off with a, with a theological premise. He just comes out and just says who Jesus is on a theological level. So he wants you to know right off the bat who Christ is. And he makes this statement, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God in the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. But John is just saying, look, on a much deeper level, I just want you to know who He is. 
You might be, if this was your first time reading it, thinking, who is the Word? Who is He talking about? When you get farther down, it becomes very clear that the Word is Jesus because you end up seeing John the Baptist being the one that leads the way for Christ to come and it's, it's all pointing to Christ. And then finally it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and obviously that's pointing to Christ. And so John starts off with this theological premise just, just telling us plain and simply who Jesus is. Well, you know what? As we consider it here this morning, the thing that he emphasizes is His deity. Deity means that He is God. It means that He is divine. And so that's what John focuses on. Now often, but Jesus would often like to use the title Son of Man uh, to refer to Himself. And others would use the title Son of God more to refer to Him. They call it the hypostatic union where man and God come together in Christ. That's a real mind twister to know just how all that works together. But nevertheless, it's kind of like uh, another subject. I remember reading on one subject one time and they said, try to explain it and you may lose your mind. But to explain it away and you'll lose your soul. <laughs> so, so we do our best to try to get our minds around it, but recognize that we have a finite mind trying to wrap around an infinite God. And so we recognize we're going to have some limitations. But you know what? As John guides us through these limitations this morning and helps us to understand in a more full sense who exactly Christ is, there's no less than a dozen indications where He would indicate in one way or another that Christ is God in the flesh. I tried to just focus on the first five verses, but it's so interconnected that it's hard to do that. you also notice, if you look at the notes within your bulletin, that there's 12 points to this. Now, it usually takes about 45 minutes to go through three, so... You can do the math. <laughs> but No, we're going to go quickly. But I found as I immersed myself in this passage that not just the beginning statement, but everything in these first 18 verses all points to the fact that Christ is divine. In Scripture, you'll find all kinds of evidence of the Trinity, all kinds of evidence that, that Christ is God in the flesh. Um, some of it is just bold statements about who He is. Some of it is the fact that He accepts worship. There's different tasks. Like, for example, you realize the Bible says that, that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And it also says that Jesus raised Himself from the dead. And then you can also find passages that say that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And so there's also like shared tasks that point to the fact of the Trinity. How could all those things be true if not for the Trinity? And so a lot of things reinforce our understanding. And within the Gospel of John in this first chapter, he does the same thing. There's lots of different ways. He starts out with just a bold statement. Now, the first indication that we see that Christ is, is God in the flesh is that He is eternal. In John 1.1 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. If you go back and look at the book of Genesis, it starts out very similar. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our little kids in release time and stuff ask this question quite often. They say, well, where did God come from? I say, well, He didn't come from anywhere. They can't get their mind around that. What do you mean He didn't come from anywhere? Well, who, who made God? He made everything else. Who made Him? Nobody. And we start to explain to them that God is eternal. The Bible starts off, in the beginning, God. He's, he's already in existence. He's already there. In fact, the Bible teaches us, Psalm 90, verses 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As far as you can go in the past, as far as you can go in the future, which is unlimited, He's there. He's an eternal being. And then notice what John does. The same way that Genesis started. In the beginning, God created. And you know what? It really has to kind of be that way, doesn't it? Because when you think about it, infinite things have to exist, but we just have a hard time understanding them. 
You know, we think that about space. We, does space go on forever? Probably. Something has to go on forever. Because if it doesn't, if it stops, then what, what's after that? Because if, it, if something stops, then something else, something has to start. And if, then when, when does that end? Does that, so you see, something has to go on forever. Uh, we all uh, kind of recognize it. God's the same way. If, if you take God and say, God created everything, who created God? Make another being that would have created God? Well, then you'd still have the same question. Well, who created Him? It has to stop with something eternal somewhere. And, and you know what? That's, that God is that being. Everybody, whether they, actually whether they believe in God or not, has to recognize that there is something called eternity. There is such a thing as eternal. Well, God is eternal. He is the person that everything else comes out of. He is the cause that caused every other effect in the whole world. And in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he points to that feature and says that's what Christ is. In the beginning was the Word. He was already there. Jesus wasn't created when He was born. He wasn't created when He was conceived within the womb of Mary. That's where we get our beginning, in our conception. But Jesus wasn't beginning there. That's when He became flesh. But He existed for all of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. Verse 2 repeats it. He says He was in the beginning. The same was with God. And then also in verse 15, it says, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. You know, the interesting thing about that is if you read the book of Luke, you find out that John the Baptist was actually older than Christ. And John the Baptist says, I'm coming before Him. I think he's actually not talking about his birth there. He's probably talking about Him coming as to prepare people for the coming Messiah. But he says, the One who's coming after Me was before Me. Well, wait a minute. If you're older than him, how could he be before you? Because he was, he is eternal. And so, three different ways that we see the eternal nature of Christ in this. Now, who is eternal? I'm not eternal. You're not eternal. You know who's eternal? God is eternal. But then, not only does he point out the fact that he's eternal, he points out just bluntly, he is God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Jehovah's Witness movement. They translate that differently. They change the way that reads. They change it and they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Well, in the rules of the Greek language, that's not really an accurate translation. The one that you have before you, the one that's shining on the wall, is correct. He is not a God. He is the God. But you know what? It's not just the meaning of the Word. It's actually the logic behind it. Let's take, for example, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. He starts off, he says, you are my witnesses. Now that ought to ring a bell. Because if we're thinking about the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you are my witnesses, it says. This is actually the verse that they get their name from. They name themselves the Jehovah's Witnesses because of this verse, Isaiah 43.10. But notice what it goes on to say. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so you see their theme verse, whenever we kind of try to distort the Word of God, it comes back to bite us. Their theme verse says, there is no God before God and there's never going to be another God besides God and He is the only God. And so if you take John 1, 1 and try to make it read, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. What do you mean? Another God? Because according to their theme verse, God is the only God. There's never, gonna, never has been a God and never will be a God. He has to be the God or He is no God at all. 
And so just the logic of it answers back against that. And, and that's why you see, like in verse 18 of this also, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so at the very beginning of this passage, it says that He was with God and He was God. At the very end of this, and He says, the one true God who is sitting at the Father's right hand has made Him known. In other words, Jesus Christ is God. You know, in John chapter 10 and verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, when Jesus said that, it was very clear to the people around him that he was claiming to be God. Because just in a couple verses later, in verse 33, what's happened is they pick up rocks, they're going to stone him to death. And Jesus said, which of my good works are you trying to stone me for? Are you going to kill me for? And it says the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. We saw that last week a little bit when we looked in Jesus' use of the phrase, I am. Because God described Himself as I am to Moses back in the Old Testament. Jesus uses that phrase many times uh, to describe Himself. At one point, they went to kill Him then too for the same reason. Because He was making Himself God. Very clearly claiming to be God. Because Jesus is God, He accepts worship. Remember when Christ was first resurrected from the dead? Thomas wasn't in the first group of people that saw Him. And when He comes back, the disciples later tell Him, we saw the Christ risen again from the dead. And Thomas said, unless I can stick my finger in the holes in his hands, unless I can stick my fist in his side where the spear got in, he says, I won't believe it. I don't buy it. But then Jesus shows up to him and he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus not only accepted the worship of Thomas when he falls on his knees before him, he commended him for it. But he actually commended others who would worship him as higher than Thomas because Thomas took some sight to make his faith kick in. Acts chapter 10, we find quite the reverse. Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Cornelius was one of the first prominent Gentiles to come to faith as the church began to shift and start to minister to Gentiles, not only Jewish people. And he falls down before Peter and worships Peter, one of the apostles. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. The apostle Paul would do the same thing. It says when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Uh, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They stopped it as quick as they could and said, what are you doing? Don't worship us. Worship God only. You know what? Even angels do that same thing. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So this time you actually have, again, an apostle. right? Thomas was an apostle, fell before Christ. Totally appropriate worship. If somebody else falls before the apostle, Peter, 
Not appropriate. Falls before the Apostle Paul. Not appropriate. John, at getting this vision, he falls before the angel. He says, I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And so you see, every place in the Bible where somebody begins to worship something connected to God but not God, an abrupt end is made of that and a correction takes place. But Jesus, on the other hand, when Thomas falls down and worships Jesus, it is not only appropriate, it is encouraged. And so we see that he is very clearly shown to be God. Well, we also notice that He is a Creator. In uh, John chapter 1 and verse 3, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, you go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Who created it? God created it. Who created it in John? Jesus, the Word, who is God. There isn't anything that was made that was not made through Him. He also kind of repeats that in verse 10. He says He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. The fact that He is the Creator also indicates that He is divine, that He is God in the flesh. Not only that, but then it points to His life. It says in verse 4, it says, "...in Him was life, and the life was the light of men." It talks about Christ as being the source of life. A lot of things are said about Christ that if He was just a man, they'd be completely out of place. (laughs) What other person in the whole world could you make this kind of a statement that He is the source of life? Only God is the source of life. But as this passage points out, it says, in Him was life. You know, in John chapter 3 and verse 36, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now think about that. This is saying that whether or not you have eternal life, it completely hinges on whether or not you have Christ. If you have Him, you have life. If you don't have Him, you have the wrath of God. It all comes down to Him. You think about that. That is an astounding statement. If I was to stand up here and say, whether or not you have eternal life depends on whether or not you like me. You'd be going, this guy's crazy. I'm never coming here again. And you'd be right to do so. I would hope you would not come back here again. To say that somebody's whole eternal destiny, and not only that, to say that everybody's whole eternal destiny all revolves around me would be nuts. Why? Because I'm not God. (laughs) That's exactly what is said about Christ. If you have Christ, you have life. If you don't have Christ, you get death. If you have Christ, you have an eternity in heaven. If you don't have Christ, you have an eternity in hell. If that's not God, I don't know what it is. That that was a statement about a divine person. That somebody has that kind of authority, that kind of impact. That the whole source of life, our physical life through creation and our eternal life through redemption, that it all centers on Christ is an amazing, astounding statement. But then it goes on to not only is He life, as I just read in the last part of that verse, He is light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It also refers to Him as the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You know, Jesus would say in John chapter 8 and verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
He's the only person you can say that kind of thing about and for it to be fitting and appropriate. In fact, you know what? When I read these, you're not even shocked by it. But stop and think. If it wasn't about Christ, it would be shocking. It would be appalling. It would be absurd. But it just fits with Christ because of who He is. He is God in the flesh. John chapter 12, verse 36 says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. As he's pointing to his ministry and, and who he is, he says, while you have the light. In other words, he's saying, while you have me here. He says, believe in it. Believe in me, he says. So you'll become sons of light. Again, astounding statements. But fits very natural within Christ because, well, because he is God. Well, then we also see it because he's the one proclaimed in John chapter 1, verses 6-8, through eight, it says, There was a man sent from God, referring to John the Baptist, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so the reason that that points to his being God is because his divine nature actually connects back to the Old Testament. Because that's what God had promised. God had promised that before the Messiah came, He would send a forerunner. Right? In, in those days, uh, if a king was going from town to town, they would have a whole crew out in front of the king that would be out there throwing stones off the road, filling in potholes. Well, these guys were the road construction. They would go ahead of the king, smoothing the way so the king had a smooth ride in. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, it describes this one that would come before the Messiah. And it describes Him as... The voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Actually, if you look a little bit farther in John chapter 1, you find John the Baptist, that referring to him. And so he was a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy that before the Christ comes, there's going to be somebody that's going to come and proclaim him. There's going to be somebody that's going to come and smooth out the way. Now, he's not smoothing out the roads, he's smoothing out the hearts. He's, he's not getting rid of the hard roads. He's getting rid of the hard hearts and saying, look, you guys better be ready because the kingdom's coming by because the king is about here. The Messiah is on his way. Well, in the Old Testament, it said there's going to be somebody that comes before him to pro- proclaim that, to smooth out the road. And all of a sudden, we see John the Baptist saying, that's me. That's my job. And then not only is he proclaimed, but he is to be believed. Now, we've already kind of hinted at that. But in verses 10 through 12, It says He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. It says, look, He came to His own and His own, did they welcome Him? No. Did they receive Him? No. It's getting right back to His favorite word there, believed. But as many as received Him, and then it describes Him as those who believed in His name. If we're going to have an eternal life, we're going to have a home in heaven, if we are children of God, it is only through believing in Christ. All of the population of heaven is dependent upon this one thing. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And just as we mentioned back with the passage in John 3.36 and that kind of stuff, that is astounding that that all depends on your relationship to one person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is God in the flesh. Jesus mixed no words with this. In John chapter 8, and verse 24, He said, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. You will die in your sins. You can't really put that any clearer. Now again, we're used to thinking all these thoughts, hearing these things about Jesus. Why? Because He's God. It makes sense. For anybody else to speak like that, it's absurd. For Christ, it's fitting. He is 
God in the flesh. Well, then not only that, we also see that He is sovereign. Right after verse 12, where it talks about us being made the sons of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God is sovereign in salvation. Jesus Christ is sovereign, and sovereignty is an expression of who God is. Well, then also, the next two I kind of want to deal with together. I'm just going to put them up there together because they're, they're listed together repeatedly. Grace and truth. In John 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the source. You know, we talk a lot about how we're saved. We're saved by grace. Grace is when God gives us something we don't deserve. Right? Mercy is God's withholding a punishment that we do deserve. Grace is God giving us the gift of eternal life which we don't deserve and have not earned. And he says Jesus is the source of that grace. But then also it talks about truth. You know, in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. To be the source of grace, the source of truth, also indicate that Jesus Christ is God. And then also, we see that He is glorious. Verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen His glory. It could be referring to a lot of things about Christ's ministry. It was a glorious ministry, but He may be referring to the time when He took Peter, James, and John up on top of the mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration, it says He was transfigured before them and they got to see His glory. But the point is, they said, we got to see His glory. To see that glory was definitely an indication that He was God, but it gets heightened when we understand some things about the glory of God. You see, God is very jealous over His glory. He does not share it, actually. We look back in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. God says, I am the Lord. That is My name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. But you know, it's kind of interesting when you look in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, notice what He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. He is definitely God in the flesh. And the very last indication that He is God is found in verse 18, and that is that He is the manifestation of God. He is the One who is showing us God. Hebrews says God in diverse times and diverse places has spoken to us in many different ways. But He says in in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. Well, that's what John kind of points to here in verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. We get a pretty clear picture of what God is like when we go through the Gospels and we see what Christ did and the things that He said. You see, because Christ is God that became man, we get to see what it looks like for God to live our life. For God to walk through the same context that we live in. For God to relate within the same fallen, cursed world that we live in. We get to see God. And that's what Jesus did as He has manifested God to the world. He's demonstrated, shown who God is. That's what we see in Christ. You know, in John chapter 14 and verses 7 through 9, we just read John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm going away. And the disciples said, well, We don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in verse 7, 
It says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, he is manifested in the person of Christ. He is shown to us. John starts out with a tall order. He starts out with this theological pronouncement of who Jesus is. He is the Word. He was with God in the beginning. And He is God. We see it through this direct statement that He's God. We see it by His eternal nature. We see it by His character bringing truth and grace into the world. We see it demonstrated in Him being the source of life and of, and of light. We see it with Him as being the Creator. The fact that this one person, our whole destiny, our whole whether or not we're in heaven or hell depends on our relationship with this one person, that guy. All of this demonstrates who Jesus is. And as John put it very simply, He is God.